we only make three types of decisions in life. High stakes, low stakes, no stakes. High stakes are the things we just talked about. They're things that do, they're worth your time. They have you know, medium to long-term implications. They have financial implications and that are you know, meaningful to you. And so you want to spend the time on them. Low stakes are things that are you know, minimal financial implications. You won't even remember sort of deliberating on this in a month or two. And no stakes are things that like, you won't even remember you know, in a couple of days. Offer expires soon. You don't want to miss it. It's the investment of a lifetime. It's going to be the party of the century. Can you feel the anxiety piling up? You know what it is. It's FOMO, the fear of missing out. In a hyper-connected world, FOMO is more intense than ever. Our friends are sharing amazing travel photos on Instagram. People are talking about the hot new investment opportunity on Twitter. News headlines bait us with the mystery of what we'll find if only we'd click. Even social distancing isn't enough to calm FOMO. Sure, you have little choice but to stay home, but then you see the screenshot of the Zoom party that you weren't invited to. Having a fear of missing out is an innately human thing. It's been around forever, but FOMO is relatively new. In fact, the term FOMO, so ubiquitous it's in the dictionary, was invented in 2004 by today's guest, Patrick McGinnis. Patrick McGinnis is the author of Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. When Patrick invented FOMO, he was a student at Harvard Business School, a choice-rich environment. More than 15 years later, Patrick still thinks about the dark side and the bright side of FOMO as a venture capitalist. If you're going to love your work, you have to make great decisions. That's what this conversation will help you do. There's more to FOMO than you think. In this episode, you'll learn how can FOMO be a good thing? If you're feeling the FOMO, it might be a sign. With all the lip service FOMO gets, it's a shame more people don't think about FOMO's cousin, FOBO. What is FOBO and why is it all bad? And FOMO and FOBO can wipe out your mental energy with decision fatigue. Learn a quick and fun hack for saving brain cycles called Ask the Watch. I think you're going to love it. P.S. Patrick McGinnis is one of the last guests we'll have on Love Your Work for a while. I'm going to repeat that. One of the last guests that we're going to have on Love Your Work for a while. Why? Because I am dedicating every ounce of creative energy to my upcoming book, Mind Management, Not Time Management. And remember, the preview edition is available for a limited time. If you have FOMO about this one, that is a sign. That is over at kdv.co slash mind. And I'll be workshopping ideas from the book in my bi-weekly episodes here in the podcast. So stay subscribed for those. You don't want to miss them. And you don't want to miss this conversation. If you do, you'll regret it. Here's Patrick McGinnis. I'm here with Patrick McGinnis, who is the inventor of FOMO. So he's the guy that you can blame for all of this. How do you become the guy who invented FOMO? How do you even find out that you invented FOMO? Well, it's a long, it's a story. It's like epic in its, in its scale. It, it goes over like 15 years. But basically, it starts back in 2004. 
I was a student at Harvard Business School, and I basically the year before, back in 20, 2003, I had I had with my friends realized that our life there was really strange. I mean, it, we lived in a, an environment where, unlike what my life was like before when I was living in New York City after college, I was back on a campus surrounded by 1,800 other people who were my age, who were overachievers, trying to do it all in this very choice-rich environment where we could interview for tons of different jobs and go to tons of different events and vacations. And you know, we had disposable income because we had worked before. And so we basically could do anything we wanted. And we all tried to do everything. And so we spent our time running around. And I, I noticed that I would commit to three, four, five events a night. Uh, on the weekends. And I was going from 7 a.m. in the morning till midnight every day. And I was constantly sick and stressed out, but I, you know, I didn't want to miss out on a thing. And so I started referring to this fact that all of us were running around with our heads cut off as a fear of missing out. And I shortened that to FOMO. And I started using that with my friends. And it became sort of a typical word that we would use in emails and in conversations if somebody was behaving like that. And then I wrote an article about FOMO in the school newspaper in 2004, May 10th, 2004, the piece ran. And then I graduated and moved on with my life and didn't think that much about FOMO because I went back into working all the time and basically not having a lot of free time to worry about, you know, all the FOMO in my life. And only uh, 50, about, it was actually my 10th year reunion, 10 years later, I got a call from a reporter who was researching the history of FOMO, and he traced it back to me, and he said, I want to interview you about your role in creating the term FOMO. And I said, well, that's fine, but why, why do you care? You know, this is not a particularly momentous thing. And he said, well, don't you realize it's become a major part of culture? It's actually in the dictionary. And I had no idea. I actually missed out on FOMO becoming a thing. So it was a shock. <laughs> you had a, a, you didn't even get a chance to have a fear of missing out about missing out on FOMO becoming a, a word in the dictionary. Uh, so FOMO, for those who aren't aware of it, I don't I don't know whether that is is possible for somebody to not be aware of it. fear of missing out, fear of that 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 there's something else out there that you should be doing right now besides what you're doing right now. And this is a, obviously a, a very uh, Im important phenomenon in our time with so many uh, different things that we see on social media all day, so many different podcasts to listen to, uh, so many different books to read. Can we break down FOMO? What causes this? Yeah, so... First of all, I think it's helpful to define what it is because there are, it's interesting, there's been a lot of research on FOMO by clinical psychologists. When I started researching, you know, once I realized that this was a thing now, I Googled it and I found tons of academic work on the topic, which blew my mind. And then I decided to create my own comprehensive definition based on, you know, the fact that there wasn't one out there. And so basically, FOMO is two things. It is, uh, it's a, an anxiety which is created by the perception that there is something better out there for you than what you're doing at the moment. And I think it's, you referred to that earlier. And number two, it's a aversion to being excluded from an event, uh, a collective event, something that you know a crowd is taking part of. And so you combine those two together, that's FOMO. What causes FOMO? Well, you know, first of all, there's a biological element. You know, FOMO is part of the human experience. And if you go back to the original sort of people who wandered the earth, the Homo habilis and Homo erectus, our, our ancestors, they were very aware of what they had and did not have, but needed in order to survive in the, in the sort of Darwinian struggle 
know? And so if you were a caveman or lady and you saw your neighbors had a better fishing spot or a better cave or whatever to live in, or if you were afraid of getting kicked out of the group where you'd be sort of easy prey for predators, you 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 had a biological response that you need to be to be to be part of the crowd to survive. And so that that's just part of who we are. Obviously, we those things have changed, but it's still in our DNA. The second thing is it's been part of our culture for a long time. And so if you think about the 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 term keeping up with the Joneses, that comes from a comic strip about a family that was trying to keep up with their neighbors, the Joneses. And that was from 100 years ago. And so, you know, FOMO was sort of like a modern version of that. And funny enough, keeping up with the Joneses, the family that's trying so hard to keep up is actually called the McGinnis family. So they're my long lost oh, fiction, wow. they're my long lost fictional relatives. When I, when I read that, I almost fell off my chair. But <laughs> the thing that has really made FOMO, like, why did we need a word, right? Like, why do we need a word for, for this thing? A new word. And the, the reason we need it is because of technology. And that is the fact that we are more connected and more interconnected than we've ever been in history. We live on our devices. We, 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 are, we are constantly seeing what other people are doing thanks to Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. And all of these images are, are sort of airbrushed and filtered. And so therefore, you know, we have this reference anxiety where we compare ourselves to other people. And so as a result, it's really easy to interact with the kinds of information that cause us to feel FOMO. Yeah, and so there's this, this evolutionary psychology element to it, I guess, which is that if you were missing out, you might not survive. If you were missing out, you might get cast out of the tribe, which would result in you not surviving most of us these days, it's almost like the type of behavior that the type of behavior that would that would cause one to ignore FOMO would would be an advantage. Would it be advantageous to to be able to ignore any fear of being cast out of the group or or fear of missing out on the the next best opportunity? Would that be good if you had some muta- mutated gene that made you you know? immune to FOMO. I definitely think that there are advantages to not feeling FOMO, right? If you think about great leaders, we don't say, what a great leader, he followed everybody else, right? I think that there's clearly some of the greatest business leaders we can think of. They're iconoclasts. They don't follow the crowd. They go their own way and they don't care what people think about it. And that that's, that is highly um, relevant. I would say, on the other hand, though, that FOMO isn't all bad. There is a good element to FOMO. For example, say you're working in a corporate job and you notice your friend starts a company or say you're sitting at home and you you know you read about uh, on Facebook about your friend who started working for a charity or went on a vacation and you say to yourself, "Why, well, you know, I'd like to do that." You feel a little FOMO. It may be that your FOMO is helping you to uncover things that you should probably try doing. And so it's great for in terms of discovery of what our hidden passions are. But again, if that infects every aspect of your life from you know what you're going to do on Friday night to what you're going to do with your life, uh, you're going to spend a lot of time being stressed out and feeling anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like at the base of FOMO, I believe you say is asymmetry of information. So what does that mean? Exactly. So... It's funny, I, this came out of a conversation I had with a good friend of mine. I was, this is a couple of years back and we were, he's also, he was my, a couple of years after me in business school. So we didn't overlap, but we are friends from school. And I was, 
we were talking about FOMO and, and he said, you know, this is really an economic problem. It's, it's asymmetry of information. And asymmetry of information happens when you have two people on a, either side of a transaction and one person knows exactly what's going on. They have perfect information and the other person doesn't. So say you're selling a car and you know that your car is, you know, on its last leg, even though it looks just fine and you're trying to sell it to some buyer, you can get them to pay way more than they should because there's an asymmetry of information. And the same thing applies with FOMO. Say, you know, for example, you see your friend who is an entrepreneur and they've got that startup and they've got the Kickstarter campaign and they raise money and, you know, from the outside, it looks amazing. And you're sitting there at home thinking like, you know, I'm not doing nothing with my life. And my friend here is out there living their dream and so successful and, oh my goodness, I'm depressed now and all that sort of stuff. What you don't see behind that is maybe the fact that the business isn't doing well, that the person isn't happy, that it's not enjoyable, that you wouldn't even like it if you were in the person's shoes. And so there's all these aspects of like the difference between the perception. You know, perception is deception many times. Um, what you see is not what you get. And so that's why, you know, and, and when I when I think about FOMO, so much of the work that we have to do to overcome FOMO is to reduce and if possible eliminate as much as possible that information asymmetry because the minute you bring things back to reality FOMO loses much of its power. Yeah so I I thought it was an interesting observation that you made in the book about Fire Festival. Uh, A lot of people have seen a couple of uh, documentaries about Fire Festival and and how it was kind of a monetization of FOMO in a way in that they they were presenting sort of a, a mystery like all the the models were sharing on Instagram just some orange tile, and there 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 was going to be this thing on a private island, but you couldn't really know unless unless you went and did it, and 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 so they 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 did go and and, and people did go to the festival and were were disappointed and lost a lot of money, and and now the the guy who started it is is in jail, I believe. So, what are some some ways that uh, we can eliminate this information asymmetry? In, in various aspects uh, where we encounter FOMO. So f- I, I, first of all, I just want to say that I, you know, the fire Festival example, when that happened, I actually had a friend who was there. And so it was really interesting because I saw this and it was like, and I immediately thought this is a complete FOMO situation. And in fact, that it was mentioned a lot of times in the documentary, the rural FOMO, in, in getting people to, to spend all this money and time going to this festival and my friend who was there, funny enough, he was trying to convince me because I was messaging him and saying like, oh my goodness, what a disaster. And he was like, no, no, it's actually really fun. It's not as bad as it looks. And I was just like, man, somebody really drank the Kool-Aid here. And that's the thing is that when people are inside and are, you know, I'm willing to kind of sort of admit that their decision was a bad one, they will do that. When it comes to when it comes to sort of unmasking this information asymmetry, you know, I like to think, and I'm an investor, I do venture capital, and, you know, you can be a VC investor or you can be any kind of investor, really, but, but we, you really need to think of the, how investors think. And when investors are looking at an opportunity, it's very easy to feel the FOMO. You're like, oh my goodness, I'm looking at investing in this company and I could become really rich if it's successful. And so it's easy to start dreaming. But the job of an investor, a sensible investor, is to not dream, but to be very, very sort of tied to reality, to test each assumption and say, is this for real or not? And so that's what you should do when you're looking at something that gives you FOMO. Whether it's, you know, again, something sort of 
not that important. That's just sort of in your in your your life, you, an opportunity to travel or something, or whether it's something really big, like should I change jobs? You want to dig deep into the bottom to figure out, okay, is what I think I'm going to get, is what I you know I'm dreaming about, does that correspond to reality? And so that'll be basic things like actually just trying to find out as much as possible, whether you know doing your own research or talking to people, so get, having a process of due diligence. And it's also about you know. Figuring out, I mean, I think a lot of times we dream about things and they're not even available to us. So it's sort of like, can I afford this? Can I actually do this? Do I have the time and energy? Um, is this even available to me? You know, those kinds of basic block and tackle things. Like you can feel a lot of FOMO about be, you know, becoming a basketball player, but like I'm 5'7", it's not going to happen unless they lower the hoop. So like if it's not possible for me and that's okay. But that's really the, the, the process, of, a big part of the process of overcoming FOMO mm. is to strip away the mythology. That's an interesting observation about how FOMO can be a sort of form of, of daydreaming in a way. And I feel like it happens a lot with creative pursuits. There's so many people who they, they, they dream about starting a business, they dream about uh, writing a book, they dream about starting a podcast, and they procrastinate on it, they never do it, and 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 part of it maybe is that they're imagining what it would be like if they did it and it's almost like there's some it, there's some fomo there and the fomo is pleasurable like the fomo is more pleasurable than actually going and finding out what it's like if they would just write the darn book and 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 ship it is that going on i definitely think so because Listen, humans, we need to dream. We need to think big. All of us need something to look forward to in our lives. If we simply, you know, lived in our you know, sort of dreary day-to-day -day existence and didn't have bigger ideas or dreams for ourselves, it would be kind of depressing. So that's a healthy thing to do. But let's take the example of the podcast. I love you brought that up. We both have podcasts, right? So like we, we did this. We have gone through the process of starting them. When you don't have one and you see all these people start podcasts and you start to see, oh my goodness, and like they got, you know, really, a really cool guest on and they got a really cool, good, you know, number. They're ranking up in the, in the rankings and they're, their show's doing great. Oh my goodness, they've got advertisers, all those things. From the outside, it looks so great. And you're like, well, how hard could it be? Once you do it and you realize like, wow, actually being a, like podcasting is super hard, okay? Everybody who wants to start a podcast, just know it's, it's a ton of work. Just don't do it. It's, <laughs> it's so hard. And it's a lot of people do it. But the average podcaster, I think, abandons after like nine episodes. But like... Until you actually have to do the work and realize how hard it is. And by the way, it's enjoyable. I mean, we both do it because we enjoy it. But until you get to that point, it just feels good. And then when you do it and you uncover that information asymmetry and you eliminate it, you realize, oh my goodness, like this is way more than I bargained for. <laughs> then, then you're on the other side. And like, I, you know, that's why I encourage people don't have a phone about a podcast, try doing it and then tell me what you think. So, are you familiar with The War of Art and uh, Stephen Pressfield's Resistance? I am not. Oh, okay, so it's this idea in, in, in creative work that, that there's resistance that, that will, in some cases, cause you to create mental distortions that prevent you from following your creative destiny. And so it's starting to sound to me like FOMO is one weapon of, of resistance in, in a way. If, if, if you allow yourself to live in the FOMO and to not change that information asymmetry and go out and find I mean it's one thing if you feel the FOMO and you think oh gosh I, I I'm feeling this 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 FOMO about my friend who started a podcast 
that means I should go start a podcast and you go do it and you find out it's hard or, or you find out that you love it. That's one thing. But then if you, if you just let the FOMO stew, then that seems to be a form of resistance or, or, or creative procrastination, which I would posit that, interestingly, I think it's a little bit of a product of ego in that our ego protects us and our ego is telling us this other thing would be great if we would just do it if it wasn't for these other things that are in the way of us. So I don't know. There's a, there's a, lot, there's a lot of different things going on there that, that, that cause that. But it made me think about, about the, the resistance, war of art, something that, that, you, should, that you, sh- you might want to check out. Anyway, let's, let's talk a little bit more about the harm that there is in experiencing FOMO. What, what is so bad about, I don't know, say scrolling through Instagram and, and seeing that your friend is in Thailand right now and you're sitting in a great cubicle in Iowa right now and, and you don't want to be? It, it's fascinating because when I started working on this book and um, reading all of the clinical psychology, I would have been kind of saying to myself, like, yeah, what is really the big deal? Like, yeah, it's annoying, but, you know, whatever. I was wrong. And, and what's interesting is that I've, now I've read a ton of uh, really well-researched clinical psychology pieces that have been published in major academic journals. And so, like, people take this really seriously. I had no idea. Because when I think, you know, FOMO, we think of as a meme, right? It's like, oh, Game of Thrones meme on your, uh, you know, on, on a, a GIF or something or some silly commercial or, or something that's everywhere, right? FOMO's in so many ad campaigns. And so it's very lighthearted. But if you look at it clinically, there is a pathology. And in fact, uh, what we have learned from the, the, psych- the psychology world is that people with FOMO, and by the way, 56% of people feel FOMO when they're away from social media, news sites, other sort of places where they get information. So it's not inconsiderable. It's a lot of people. Think about 2 billion people have social media accounts in the world. That means that it's over a billion people who suffer from FOMO. And so what is going on is, number one, people have, it leads to depression because you're comparing yourselves with other people, things that are not, you know, even likely real, right? It's like, oh, I'm comparing myself to my friend, but they've used a million filters on that picture. They don't really look like that. Number two, we end up sort of seeing our peers and we sort of feel inferior to them. Number three, it th- those sorts of things and the reference anxiety, they trigger depression and they can actually trigger physical uh, manifestations of the anxiety. So it really is quite shocking how, how this phenomenon can affect all aspects of our lives. And then, of course, uh, another thing that you know, people don't think about you know, is the, the productivity element of this. It helps to feed the addiction to our vices, devices, excuse me. So we spend a lot more time connected than we should. And finally, there's a financial implication. So there was a study done by Charles Schwab that showed that the average American uh, spends hundreds of dollars a year on on items they don't need because of FOMO. And also, we invest if we invest because of FOMO, and I'll tell you, if you Google Bitcoin and FOMO together, you get nearly a million hits because people will invest in things they don't understand because they think they're going to make money and because everybody else is investing in them and they get burned. And so there's a real financial application as well. Mm-hmm. You know, this really taps into something that I'm experiencing right now. I, for the last four years, have lived in a furnished apartment down in Columbia 
And I finally got my first unfurnished apartment, which means that I'm collecting stuff again. I'm getting furniture. So now it's like everywhere I go, I'm like, well, is this is this the right rug to get? Is this the right couch to get? Do I can I get a better deal somewhere else? And there's parts of me who I found it so good for my productivity to not have things to be quote unquote minimalist to 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 rent a furnished apartment. It just became something that I couldn't keep doing. But now I'm I'm very hyper aware of oh my gosh I'm thinking about my stuff instead of thinking about the things that I want to be doing, which is writing, making this podcast, stuff like that, which I think brings us to the, I guess, cousin or sibling of FOMO, which is FOBO, fear of better offer, something that a lot of us experience perhaps while we're shopping for furniture. Mm-hmm. Yes, FOBO. Okay, so FOMO, you know, you, you think to yourself, well, you know, everything is, is terrible with FOMO, but it can't get any worse. And unfortunately, I think that FOBO is way worse than FOMO, and I'll tell you why. But FOBO stands for fear of a better option, and it's the idea that when we're trying to make a choice, that we wait, we think that there is something better out there for us. So whether that is, you know, searching on, sorry, on on Netflix, or whether we think it's searching for a job, it's like there's something better out there, I just have to keep looking. And as a result, you never want to actually make a decision because you're kind of holding out for something better. And so then as a result, you end up in kind of a decision paralysis and you're not willing to do anything. And so that that's the FOBO. And the reason why it's so much worse than FOMO is, first of all, as I mentioned, FOMO can have a positive aspect. It may waken you up to something that that you want to try. And, and in fact, I think of FOMO a little bit like like drinking wine, like have a glass or two of wine, like you know, maybe you'll dance on a table, but if you stop there, you'll be fine. You wake up in the morning, you know, you're, you're able to do whatever you need to do without a big hangover. Now, if you have too much FOMO, it's, it's drink too much wine, you know, that's not good. FOBO is a lot like smoking in the fact that it hurts you. There's nothing positive that comes out of it. And it hurts everybody around you because people are waiting for you to make a decision and they're stuck until you do. And so while like a cigarette, uh, FOBO may feel good at the moment, the long-term implications are bad for you and the people around you. And, and so that, that's, that's why I think it's way more problematic. And what's funny is I invented both of them on the same day. They're both in that original article back in 2004, but FOMO got all famous and FOBO did not. And so now I'm really trying to make sure that people understand FOBO and it's been getting a little more traction out there, but still, um, still trying to spread the word. I think this illustrates it really well, this quote from the book. If you were to treat the people with whom you work, whether they are colleagues, suppliers, or clients, like the people in your Tinder feed, you would most certainly cause lasting damage to your career. So of course, on Tinder, you're sitting there swiping left, right. <laughs> you know, you're, you're constantly looking for the better option. But that is something that will, will obviously can backfire in dating, but it can backfire and have grave consequences in your professional life as well. Totally. And obviously, you're not going to try to kiss the people in your professional life like you would in the people in your Tinder feed. But it's so true. I see this you know, constantly 
that people aren't willing to commit to anything ever anymore, right? And so just the fact of trying to get somebody to pin them down. And now I've now become, because I wrote this book and because, you know, I talk about FOBO, I've become, you don't want to mess with me. Like if you're, if you email me and you try to sort of not commit to something, I will call you right out. You know, I got an email the other day. I was supposed to meet two friends for a drink and we were trying to figure out the details. And so I just checked in the day before, hey, are we still on for this? And the woman said, oh, um, can we play it by ear tomorrow? And I said, I'd prefer not to play it by ear. Can you please commit today by three o'clock? And of course, they both bailed. And so it was great for me because now I have, you know, I opened up my schedule. It was, I can tell you something, we wouldn't have done it anyway. So now I was able to make other plans. And also I was able to test my theory that if you actually make people decide, they, they show their true colors anyway. Oh yeah, that, that yeah. There's been so many situations like that where yeah, every once in a while you do need to play something by ear because there's really something going on. But a lot of times people are just kind of waiting. They're plan shopping. I think is the word that Tim Kreider used in in one of his his essays. I, I think that was that what was some essay about being busy or something like that. So yeah, FOMO and FOBO. Though I read something in a in a book recently. I wonder if you've heard of this. It's uh, Algorithms to Live By. And I was apartment shopping and I noticed there was something, some interesting advice this, this book opened up with, which was basically, if, if you want to find the algorithmically best possible apartment for yourself, take 37% of your allotted time that you're going to search, let's say you're going to search for a month and so you pick 37% of a month, which is, I don't know, 11 days. And for the first 11 days, only look at apartments, don't commit to any apartments. And then as soon after that 11 days, as soon as you find the best apartment that you've seen, then go ahead and take that apartment. And I thought like, well, that's really interesting. That's actually a an antidote to FOBO. Are there any techniques that you are aware of that can help us get the benefits of, well, I don't know if it's a benefit of fear of better option, but you want to see all the options before you decide, but you don't want to feel FOBO, you don't want to feel FOMO, and you don't want to destroy the relationships with everybody in your life. How can you manage this? Yeah, it's really interesting. I I actually just met with a a company last week that reached out to me called Zuvu. And what they do is they actually try to help you to overcome your FOBO. Like they work with major retailers like Amazon and they ask you questions and then you answer them. And based on that, they limit your, so for example, say you want to buy a TV on Amazon. There's like thousands of choices. You answer a series of questions and then they present you your best option and then like four other potential options so that they limit the the field down for you, which I thought was really cool. I love that. So that is kind of what my strategy does. So I have developed a strategy based on research and based on some other sort of interesting cultural influences, which you'll see in a second, that I, that I, that I believe overcomes FOBO when it comes to big decisions. And when it comes to small decisions, you know, we can talk about this more, but I, I don't think you spend any time on them at all. But for the big things in life, first of all, you know, part, you still have this issue of information asymmetry. So say you are looking for an apartment and you're looking and you spend some time, you know, a week or two and you've seen a bunch of stuff, but you keep thinking, my goodness, there's, if I keep looking and looking and looking, I'm going to find something better. Well, that is, you know, that is information asymmetry. The reality is you have no idea. And frankly, there's no way to know, but what you can do is 
try to have a thoughtful approach to your search that allows you to uncover, okay, is there better something better out there for me? And frankly, just talking to people who are knowledgeable about the industry and saying, listen, I've looked at 30 apartments and they are like this. Do you think, you know, do you think that there's some hidden gem out there I'm missing? You can get smart and make a smarter decision. Now, I would assume, listen, there's always the chance that you could find that hidden gem, but like you have no way of knowing. And frankly, if you don't find it, you'll never know you did anyway. So, you know, move on with your life. And, and FOBO happens when you have plenty of acceptable options and you just struggle to pick one of them. And so what I tell people to do when they get into this position is say you've got it down to five. Yeah, you found five apartments. All of them are perfectly fine, but you just can't decide. You're stuck. Well, you, you know, your real problem here isn't the fact that you don't have any good options. It's quite the opposite, right? All of them are perfectly fine. Your problem is that you just can't choose one of them. And so what you have to do there is recognize that the problem isn't a problem of maximization because frankly, they're all kind of the same. The problem is the process and how you're actually making the decision. And what you're not willing to do at that point is to let go of things. And that's what happens when people have FOBO is that they spend so much time going back to the same set of options without discarding anything permanently that they get kind of stuck in a loop. And so the strategy that I that I adhere to here, and I actually made a TED talk about this that that you can watch called How to Make Faster Decisions, is basically you get it down to a group, say we say five, you uh, choose a front runner based on, you know, it can be your intuition or just you randomly choose a front runner. And then you, that is sort of the, the leading contender for the moment. And then you compare all of the other options directly with a leading contender one by one. Each time you do that, you pick the one you like better, okay? You force yourself to pick one over the other. And the one you do not choose is permanently eliminated, it's kind of like the Marie Kondo model where you say, I'm glad I had this option. It's a great option, but I, I'm getting rid of it forever. And in doing so, in, in being unafraid to mourn your loss and let go of an opportunity, liberating yourself from that is the only way you can actually choose something. And so that's what you do. And if you get stuck in the end, say you get down to two and you just can't choose, I actually advise you to bring in help, get friends to help you. Because again, it's not that you're choosing between a rock and a hard place. You're choosing between like, oh, I want to go to Italy on vacation or I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to jump off a cliff. No, they're perfectly fine. You cannot lose. So you just need to move past the inertia. And having a friend or a couple of friends help you do that may be what breaks the logjam. Well, you said something that was interesting in there. You mentioned mourn your loss. So mourn the loss of the options that you decided not to take. Is that what you mean? Yes, you have to let go. Because the, the one of the big problems with people with FOBO is that they're hoarders. They are hoarding opportunities. And when you do that, you know, it, it feels good to know, oh, I can I can change course at any time. I have all these different things I could potentially do. But it's a false sense of liberty and security because what you've really done is trapped yourself. Wow. This relates to something I just recently talked about on the podcast where I had this passive revenue stream happening in my business mm -hmm. uh, that had made me a, a lot of money. And I, and I, but I, I killed it even though it was making me money with, you know, for that very reason was that it seems like, oh, I've got this option. It's going to bring in money, but it's a waste of energy. It's not energy going towards the thing that I want to be focused on. So in, in a way, it's like an energy management technique getting over FOBO. It is. It's, let me tell you something. So one of the reasons I wrote this book is because somebody I was very, very good friends with in my life has crazy FOBO. And I would give you all the examples, but then the person would hear it and know I'm talking about them. So I'm not going to say it. But like literally personal, professional, like 
you know, the person is famous for this. And so I, as somebody who's close to this person, I saw it very up close and saw the price this person was paying. And it is debilitating. And it has such incredible effects on you and derivative effects on the people around you. And it's just a massive waste of energy. Indecision consumes calories. I guess it's good if you're on a diet, but like, it is just a bad, bad way to live your life because it's sort of like, think about if your computer is constantly processing, right? It uses up tons and tons of energy. You don't want to be that person. So, so you've got to move on and you've got to free up time and energy for things that are much more important. You also mentioned something I thought was interesting, which was not to spend time on on small decisions, or or I would say not to spend energy on small decisions, which is something that sometimes takes some effort. I can think of, uh, actually, just the other day, I bought a couch, and it showed up, and it wasn't the color that I expected it to be. And I double-checked on it, and it was just sort of like, okay, well, the picture on the website is a little darker than I thought it was going to be. And my mind was thinking dark, but it turned out it was light. And, and uh, you know, I thought about fighting it, but eventually, thanks to being aware of FOBO, I said to myself, you know what? Just keep the damn couch. In three weeks, you're not even going to remember that it wasn't the exact color that you expected and worry about something else. So are there times in your life where you deliberately prevent yourself from trying to perfect something that just isn't of enough consequence to matter? Yes. In fact, it's a major part of my thinking these days. And it comes to FOMO and FOBO. So basically, the way I think about it is we only make three types of decisions in life. High stakes, low stakes, no stakes. High stakes are the things we just talked about. They're things that do, they're worth your time. They have you know medium to long-term implications. They have financial implications. And that are you know meaningful to you, and so you want to spend the time on them. Low stakes are things that are you know minimal financial implications. You won't even remember sort of deliberating on this in a month or two. And no stakes are things that like you won't even remember you know in a couple of days. So it's like if you if you ask me on a Friday yeah, when I in ate the lunch, moment in the moment they all seem really important though. Totally. Right? Yeah, like if you asked me on a Friday what I had for lunch on Wednesday, I, I mean, I would have to really think about it, right? And that's just reality. And so what I do is, and let's take the, the no-stakes decisions as a great example. So I do what I call ask the watch. And I've been doing this for over 20 years since I was in college. Because again, guy, I mean, if I invented the word phobia, you know why, because I'm, I've, I struggle with indecision. But it's sort of like, my mom was in town this weekend, and she actually reminded, it's funny, she reminded me to do this. We were trying to decide between a couple restaurants for lunch, and we narrowed it down to two. And I was just like, I don't know, what should we do, blah, blah, blah. And my mom's like, ask the watch. That's your thing, right? And I was like, Mom, you're, you're, you're a great mom. You read my material. And so what do I do? I look at my watch, and I look at the second hand, and everything to the left on the left half of the watch is option one. Say, it's going to the diner. And everything on the other side is option two, and that's going to Japanese. And then I look down and see where the second hand is, and whatever side it's on, that's what we did. And so I do that. I probably do that three times a day. So it's like flipping a coin, but you don't have to have any change in your pocket. Exactly. And I, you know, it's like, I always started with the watch and I was one of these people, whenever I flip a coin, I drop it on the floor and like who carries coins anymore. So you can do it with your cell phone. You can do it. There's lots of different ways to do it. I like the watch because the watch can be broken up into quadrants as well. And so it works for that. And it's also just kind of fun. And so I've been doing this since college. Uh, I've never gone against the advice of the watch in more than 20 years. 
So, so I love it. And it's been very liberating because again, it's not like I do this 53 times a day. I make most, I make most decisions quite successfully, but I just don't want to spend seven minutes deciding whether I'm going to have, you know, you know, one, one salad versus the other at the sweet green. It's just not a good use of my time. They're all perfectly fine. Yeah, this is, this is a, a decision fatigue mitigator, right? This is, I'm going to eat the same thing every day, uh, just as an example, or I'm going to wear the same suit every day like o- Obama did or, or like uh, Steve Jobs wore the same thing every day. In, in a way, it's, it's kind of taking these things that you end up wasting decision-making power on, uh, but they don't actually really matter in the grand scheme of things. So let's just simplify it. Totally. And that's another thing you can do. Like, I don't, you know, I didn't recommend that um, specifically because I don't enjoy that. I'm not, I'm a, I'm not somebody who wants to wear the thing every, same thing every day. And I think those are very personal decisions, but, but it's the same concept. It's like, listen, just get it off your plate and move on to things that are important. Because what happens is <laughs> we spend time on these silly things because we're procrastinating and avoiding making the tough calls and the big decisions in life. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm totally with a person who eats the same thing every day, wears the same thing every day. You know, I've got my my creative schedule set. Uh, you know, how many podcast episodes am I going to be doing, and 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 when are they going to come out? And that helps me concentrate on on actually producing this the stuff. So I can see how thinking about FOMO and FOBO and trying to overcome those can can really help manage creative energy and get more out of what you've got. So Patrick McGinnis, this has been great chatting with you about this. The book is Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. I highly recommend everybody go out and, and check it out. It is available now as this conversation comes out. Where else would you like for people to get more of you, Patrick McGinnis? Yeah, so you can go to my website, patrickmcginnis.com. And my last name is M-C-G-I-N-N-I-S. Check me out. I have a podcast that's distributed by Harvard Business Review. It's called FOMO Sapiens. And I have really cool guests on there. Everybody from Andrew Yang to Jay Shetty to CEOs of companies that you've heard of like Chobani or Zola or Luke's Lobster, talking about how they make decisions. And then if you're into Instagram, I like to provoke FOMO with my Instagram. So Patrick J. McGinnis. And I'm on Twitter at PJ McGinnis. And I'm all the other places too. They're all linked from my site. So go check those out. But definitely check out the book. I promise it was a labor of love and it's a fun read. I promise you really enjoy it. Patrick McGinnis, thank you so much. Thanks, David. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Patrick McGinnis. I have Charlie Gilkey coming up in a couple weeks and Charlie will be the last guest for a while. Again, Charlie's going to be the last guest for a while. That's because for the next several months, Love Your Work will be essay episodes only every two weeks. Now, why would I stop doing interviews for the first time in four years of Love Your Work? Because I'm dedicating all of my energy to my upcoming book. This is a big one. It is highly relevant to these work from home times. I want you to have the first chance to read it. My new book is called Mind Management, Not Time Management. If you feel like you have the time, but you struggle to find the energy, this is the book for you. I'm offering a very special preview edition of the book to my loyal listeners. Read the chapters that are available right now and get the rest of the chapters as I finish them. It is at kdv.co slash mind. Now, if you wonder why I would stop doing interviews when I have a book coming up, 
You can find the answers in my latest chapter, Creative Cycles. Learn how to find the hidden patterns all around you and use them as launch pads to skyrocket your productivity. Learn more and buy at kdv.co slash mind. This is a limited time offer. I'm closing down sales soon. No FOMO. It's so I can take feedback and make revisions. Once I close sales, you will have to wait until fall to grab the first edition. So do buy now. The book is Mind Management, Not Time Management. It is at kdv.co slash mind. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by our top Patreon supporters, such as Jeffrey Mason. The theme music for Love Your Work is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.